0: still arguing about the four C's <laughs> let's pray together father God thank you that your spirit captured the words of Jesus for us and I pray that today you would help us just to be able to let you come in and change our lives and I pray it in Jesus name amen so for a brief brief period of my life I just washed my mouth and can't do a thing with it for a brief period of my life I worked selling diamonds and other jewels. And of course, when I started there, I had to learn how to identify what the most perfect diamond would look like. And this is one I stole during my training. (laughs) So, the four C's are these, carat, clarity, color, and cut. And carat refers to the, the weight. Of, of of the diamond itself, the size of the diamond. Clarity is how clear it is. How, when when you look, by the way, I've never seen a completely perfect diamond. Because most of the diamonds, all the diamonds we looked into, and we would look deeply into them, we had a microscope that we could use. You look deeply inside of them, you would see inclusions. You would see little flaws down inside of the diamond somewhere. I would love to be able to see a flawless diamond someday, but. None of the diamonds we had were flawless. They were beautiful. There were some that were very, very clear. But some of them, and some of them, you could actually see that they had inclusions just with the naked eye. You didn't even need to look deeper. You could see that they they were cloudy, that there were dark spots inside of them. And then color, of course, you want the clearest color that you possibly can go with, unless if you like a, a champagne diamond, or even pink diamonds. Some people want diamonds with those colors in them, but most people want one as clear as possible. And then there are a number of different ways that they cut the diamond to cause the reflections to look differently and of course to match what a person wants with their uh, with their particular ring if, that, if they're putting it into a ring. So one of the fun parts was that between uh, customers, I got to take the diamonds out and play and just look through them and, and, and Try and identify them and see what they were like. And I want to use the diamond as a way for us to understand the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is the most beautiful sermon. It was recorded as one of Jesus' first sermons that were given. And in that process, Jesus lays out for us factors that we've got to understand what he's talking about. And here's the thing. You can go back to sleep again if you like. But here's what the the Sermon on the Mount is about. It is not about how to get into heaven. It is not a prescription. It's a description. And what it is, is it's a description of what a flawless believer would look like. And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to come back to this several times because we need to understand it. What the Sermon on the Mount does, and especially the Beatitudes, is it describes what a flawless believer would look like. And that flawless believer, like a diamond absorbs light, and what a diamond does is it then refracts and reflects light. And so what you discover with the Beatitudes that we're going to start studying today is they describe what happens when we let the light of Jesus Christ into us and the changes that it makes inside of us. The first four do that. Then the next four show what happens as Jesus penetrates and gets inside of us, how he reflects back out of us. So, let me give you a a preview of it. The first ones describe a person who is receptive to the Lord Jesus Christ. Poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hunger and thirsting for righteousness. The next ones describe a person reflecting Jesus Christ, being merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted for righteousness. And so, that's why I use the diamond, because it helps me to get it in my own brain, what we're looking at. The thing you've got to understand is that Jesus wasn't giving a new set of laws. He wasn't saying, all right, you want to come into my kingdom? This is what you're going to do. You're going to be poor in spirit. You're going to mourn. You're going to be meek. you have got to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're got to be merciful. You're going to be pure and not peacemakers and persecuted for righteousness. If that's how we get into heaven, you've got to do them all. And if you're going to do them all, you've got to be persecuted too. Because if you're, unless you're persecuted, you don't get into heaven. So you're with me there? It's not describing, not prescribing for us how we get into heaven, although those first ones describe what happens when we come to Christ in salvation. This is just the process that we go through, but it's also a process we stay in for the rest of our lives. Now, let me give you the, the setting for this. The first thing you've got to understand is that the primary audience that Jesus is speaking to were his disciples, his apprentices. They were the ones who gathered closest to him. We read this. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying. So the primary ones that Jesus is speaking to are those who are already committed followers of his. Just before this, he had spent a night praying about who he should select as his disciples. And then he selected and called these men. We know that they ended up being 12 of them to be followers of his who would walk with him. And so that's who the, 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 he's speaking to as he starts the Sermon on the Mount. The crowds were there. And in fact, when you get to chapter 7, you notice that the crowds were astonished. They were listening in. And they were astonished at the authority with which he spoke. All the rabbis they heard, they, that they ever heard speak would never speak with their own authority they would always refer to another rabbi, or that rabbi, or this rabbi, or that rabbi. They would never speak from their own authority. Jesus didn't do that. He spoke on his own authority, and the crowd was then moved by it. And so among those people in the crowd, there were those who became followers over time. But as Jesus is, is teaching, he's focusing first on those who already have made a commitment to him. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount catches us Right from the, the first word. Notice that. He went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now, a rabbi could walk around and, and talk. And in fact, if you think about every time you've seen this in movies, Jesus is walking around. He's always wandering around. Blessed the blessed other. And people, blessed and blessed, blessed. And you think, come on. How could anybody hear what he was saying? He's constantly on the move. Nobody could, could do it. Now, the mountainside helped. Going up on a mountainside, which we think was around the Sea of Galilee, probably provided an amphitheater for him. And so people could hear him when he spoke. But when a rabbi wanted to make sure that, that his listeners fully understood what he's about to teach them, he would sit down. In other words, he'd say, this is class time. We're going to spend time here together. And he would sit down to teach them because it, said, because it sent a signal, what I'm about to do is to teach you something very significant. And so from now on, for the next few weeks in our sermons, you're going to stand and I'm going to sit, okay? <laughs> it actually helped one very important thing. It helped people not to fall asleep. <laughs> but you never do with me, so it's okay. All right, now, he went up on the mountain, sat down. His disciples came to him and In in my understanding of what a disciple was, the word apprentice is the most accurate translation of the Greek word mathetes. We understand what an apprentice is. An apprentice is someone who would come alongside somebody who's a master craftsman, for example, and learn to know everything that that person knows and would learn the skills that that person has. Now, what a, a master craftsman would want to do is not only teach what he knows, not only pass along his skill, His actual desire was to create a clone of himself, somebody who would be just like himself in the process. Hi, guys. So, for example, in those days, when a person was being trained to be a physician, and, in fact, it was that way all the way up through the 1800s, 1900s, if you were being trained to be a physician, you didn't sit in a classroom and get lectured. You went alongside a physician, and he would teach you what he knew while you were there with him and you he would he would at first you would watch him a surgeon you would watch him see how he made incisions and as time went along he'd have you do the same thing on cadavers then when you were trustworthy enough he'd have you do it on an, an actual person so you would be there with him and you would learn his particular way of doing things so a rabbi didn't want you just to know what he knew a rabbi wanted them to become a clone of him now there was pride in that. Okay. Uh, So rabbis were kind of like, well, I've got it all together. And so I want people who become like me, who've got it all together. The idea of an apprentice was to obey the teaching of the master, not just to know it, but to obey it, to learn the skills that the master had, and then to become just like the master. So to know, to do, and to be would be what an apprentice was. And so when Jesus went there, he was teaching them and I love the, the way that Dallas Willard had come, had summed it up. What Jesus was doing is he was taking those followers, and remember his goal is that we would all become just like him. God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Ultimately, we will all, once we're in heaven, leave behind the, the fogginess of our lives, and we will become just like Jesus Christ. We'll never become gods, but we'll become people who are pure, and who are just like Him. But in the meantime, right now, the Spirit of God is at work in your life and mine to turn us into people who are just like Jesus. And that's why Dallas Willard said this, I'm learning from Jesus to live my life as He would live it if He were I. And that helps us to understand when we go into the, uh, the Beatitudes, what is happening there. By the Beatitudes, Beatitude is, is a Latin term that comes from the Greek word makarios, which found its way into English, which means blessed. So, as I understand it, when we study the Beatitudes especially now, we're we're taking a look at the character traits of a kingdom citizen. Now, if you and I were to be a diamond and we were to be examined, how many of us would be perfect? Not one. Not one. However, There are people who think, yeah, I'm not perfect, but hey, I'm close. Mm -hmm. And if God were to shine his light inside of us, we would find that there are all kinds of little inclusions, all kinds of little flaws inside every single one of us. And in fact, be prepared for this. The longer you let Jesus into your life, the longer you let him shine his light into your life, over the years, you're going to discover, oh, another one. I've got another sin in here. I've got another flaw. I've got another inclusion. You will discover that there's, there's always something inside of us that needs the work of God inside of us. And so when we look at the, the Beatitudes, what Jesus is describing for us is, this is the character traits of someone who lets me into their life. And you'll see these first ones overlap, coming to become a Christian, because and we'll see it. But, also, but he's also describing how we always live, that we're to always be poor in spirit. We're to be always mourning, not that we're to be miserable. We have to come back to that next week. But we have to always be available to the light of Jesus Christ to come into us. And just as with a diamond, as he comes in and he cleans up the inclusions, we reflect him more and more out into the world. And so read with me. These are called the Beatitudes. And read with me. And the first ones are the ones where Christ's light comes into us. Read with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, notice those ones there being merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted for being Christian. Notice that. Those are things that we can't create in our own lives. We can't make ourselves into people like that. In fact, we can't do any of the others. Poor in spirit, for example, is where we start. You can't make yourself poor in spirit. You are. (laughs) Okay? Understand that. It's not saying you must become poor in spirit. It's saying you are. But you need to be aware of it. The word blessed is the Greek word makarios, makarios and it was used to describe the best life you could imagine. So a Makarios person was a most fortunate person because he was living the best life you could imagine. Remember this, the, the, the island of Cyprus was called the Makarios Island because it had such beautiful weather, had all the food you could need there, all the water you would need there. You could live on that island for all of your life and never long to go anywhere else. The Makarios Island. It spoke of contentedness and joy and safety and prosperity and happiness. Macarios describes the richest possible soul that you can imagine. And so Jesus is saying, these are the kind of people who are makarios. Many translations translated happiness, and that's unfortunate because to us happiness is a feeling and it comes and goes. Happiness is part of our lives. By the way, and that's very important. the Beatitudes don't tell us that in order to become a Christian, you've got to be a mournful person all the time. You've got to become a wimp. You've got to become miserable. And that's how you become a... No, not at all. Joy is part of the, of the blessing of being Makarios. And so that's, that's when, when you've got somebody who's truly Makarios, that joy shows up inside of them as well. But when you read them, they, 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 they seem to say, no, that's not how we think people are blessed. Here's those blessings in the way the word looks at it the word blessed is people who say hey i'm spiritual you heard that a lot of people go i'm spiritual i may not believe in jesus i may not believe in god but i'm a spiritual person very proud statement i'm a spiritual person okay i'm not poor in spirit i'm a spiritual person i'm good i'm basically okay i don't need to mourn i'm okay hey and notice this the world praises those who are arrogant Those who are pushy. Those who get to the front of the line. We try to train our kids to be that. We want you to be first. Come on, you need to stand up. Stand up and and be yourself and get up there. Those who are hedonistic. Hedonistic means I love stuff that is wrong. I love money. I love pleasure. I love all those kind of things. The world says blessed are those who are motivated for themselves. We want everybody to be self-motivated. But... Motivated to the point where I look after number one, regardless of what happens to others. Black sheep. Have you noticed we love having black sheep? People who don't live according to the morals of the world. And we call them black sheep. Ah, the black sheep is cute. People who want to win at all costs. People who are celebrated by the dark side. Those are the kind of ways that the world says, these are the blessed people. These are the ones that we look to. Jesus said, nope, let me describe to you. What the character of a, of a citizen of heaven is like. And he starts with blessed are the poor in spirit. And we immediately think, oh, so I've got to become a wimp. Because it's the only way that, that, that I can be... Have the... Oh, by the way, and notice, blessed are the poor in spirit for what is theirs. The kingdom of the heavens. The most incredible thing that you could possibly inherit. Is that you get to be part of God's eternal kingdom? Covered this last week. Let me just cover it again for you very quickly. Right now, the kingdom is here in inauguration. Well, the moment Jesus stepped onto this world, His kingdom came into this world. But His kingdom is not yet completely fulfilled. And what He's doing is He's recruiting people for His kingdom, preparing us to live in that ultimate kingdom. There's going to be an ultimate kingdom when he's going to give us a new heavens and a new earth. And that's what he's speaking about. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We will live in this incredible new world with no, no, no pain, no death for the rest of, of eternity. And we will be in a place where I believe we're going to still be creative. God is not going to put us in a place where we go, oh, well, it's all done, nothing to do. What do you want to do? I don't know. Can you play a harp? Yeah, let's play a harp together. You know what? No. God created us to be co-creators, and whatever that new world is going to be like, we're not going to be dull, bored people. It's going to be a place where we're going to be challenged somehow. We don't understand it. Paul said, oh, "I wish I could tell you, but God won't let me." It's going to be the most incredible place. So the kingdom of heaven is here now in inauguration. It's going to come ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth, and in between. There's going to be a millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign, when Jesus is going to step into history on this planet right now. And for a thousand years, he will reign here. I believe in order to prove to people, people say, I would believe in God if I could see him. For a thousand years, they can see him. For a thousand years, they could actually go and and watch him and and hear from him. For a thousand years, he'll be here. And you think at the end of a thousand years, people go, Wow, now that I've seen him, I believe in God. Nope. At the end of a thousand years, the, the human race will rebel again against Jesus Christ. Just amazing how we prefer to be gods of our own lives. And so the, the millennial kingdom is a fulfillment of promises from the Old Testament. It'll be that thousand years. Then it'll usher in a, an eternal state. Okay, with me there? Okay. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens, right now and all the way through the millennium and into the eternal state. The moment you, be, you, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of the heavens is yours. It's given to you as an inheritance that will never be taken away from you. Well, then, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Jesus said, makarios are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Poor in spirit does not mean I am a nobody. Okay, you with me there? He's not saying you've got to go. Oh, I'm a nobody. I'm worthless. I've got. You know, I'm no value at all. It doesn't mean I'm not. I'm personally without value. I'm a worm. Being poor in spirit does not mean I hate myself. It does not mean financial destitution, that I'm, I've got no money at all, I'm totally poor. And it does not mean a feigned or showy humility, okay? <laughs> Some of the proudest people are humble people. We're just poor folks. That can be the most proud statement a person can make. Somebody could go, hey, I'm rich. I come from a rich family. Pride, arrogance. But then the people go, oh, we're just poor folks. Always been just poor folks. And they're proud of that. It's kind of like, are we sick? We can't. It's just weird. The moment you feel you're humble, it's gone. (laughs) The moment you brag about being a humble person, it's over. Skid over. You're no longer truly there. So you can't feign being poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means I know I am spiritually bankrupt got to read something to you from one of my professors he was just an amazing man dr haddon robinson he's just gone home to be with the lord in the last couple of years he said this being poor in spirit does not mean that the wimps of the world and the flunkers of personality tests should unite behind christ's words abraham moses daniel and paul were not poor spirited uninvolved letting life happen to them they could make it through the day without calling their psychiatrist. <laughs> Being poor in spirit doesn't mean that, oh, I'm just a loser. I'm such a loser. Oh, I'm terrible. It means simply this, that I understand that I am spiritually bankrupt. I cannot buy my way into heaven. And see, human beings, all of us think, I may not be the worst person at all, but I'm pretty good, and God's got to be impressed with me. Okay? So, in order to get this through um, to us, we need to understand that. Poor in spirit means that I am morally imperfect. Like this diamond, I'm morally imperfect. Oh, and by the way, how perfect should I be? Jesus said, if you want to enter heaven on your own, you must be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you want to enter heaven on your own credentials, you must never, ever think a wrong thought. You must never, ever do anything wrong, your entire life. And it's already too late for all of us. Think about that. Jesus said, "You must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect." If you want to get there, with your own credentials, being poor in spirit means I've got inclusions inside of me. I've got flaws inside of me. I know they're there, and I can't do anything about them. There, I look pretty good on the outside. But on the inside, there are these things wrong with me that I know are wrong. And frankly, I can't change without help. I cannot do what God wants me to do or to be who he wants me to be without his assistance. I need God in order to become what he wants me to become. On one occasion, Jesus told a parable in order for us to kind of grasp what being poor in spirit is like. He talks about a Pharisee, and he said, The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I've got. Now, Jesus, as he was beginning his his teaching, had to help people to understand the people who set themselves up as the models of godliness are not the people you'd look to. And those were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were people who were... If, if your daughter brought home a Pharisee and wanted to marry him, you'd be going, yes, yes, yes. She's chosen the cream of the crop. He's a spiritual giant among us. We want him. If a Pharisee were running for president right now, it'd be all over. He'd be this perfect person in every way. And we would go, oh, ha, ha. The whole thing is settled. There's our our next president. In fact, let's make him king. The Pharisees were people who were committed to keeping God's law. They were so committed to keeping God's law that they made up laws to help them keep God's laws. So they had 630-something laws that they had made up. I've got to tell you about one of them. I think it's just amazing. the, The law said you should not work on the Sabbath. So they had to figure out. What does it mean to work on the Sabbath? Well, one of the things about working on the Sabbath means you cannot carry a burden, something too heavy. But the problem is, it took nails to hold shoes together. So, when I'm walking, I'm carrying a burden, so I'm breaking the Sabbath. So but they then figured out, all right, how, what's the minimum number of nails that it is necessary to hold a shoe together? And once they'd figured out the minimum number, that's all you could use in your shoes because then it held your shoe together, but you weren't carrying a burden. If you had one extra nail, you broke the Sabbath. Sorry, tough tamales, you're you're now broken the Sabbath. You could only travel a certain distance on the Sabbath. So one of the things they did to get around that is they were, you would pack a lunch, and you would the day before the Sabbath, which is the, the seventh day, you would go out and put a, a lunch there. And then you would go a little bit further out, and you'd put another lunch there, and another lunch out there with water. And that way, on the Sabbath, you could walk up to that spot, eat, and I'm still, I haven't broken the Sabbath, I haven't gone any further, and I'm in the Sabbath. And then you go on to the next one. Can you imagine living like this? We had all kinds of rules and regulations and laws. I was part of a church at one time that had those kind of rules and regulations. No smoking, no drinking, no dancing. And on the Sabbath, you've got to not do anything other than go to church. One of the girls in our, in our group asked me to go with her to a senior prom. And her parents were really strict. No dancing. And at her prom... She's going, please, let's dance. And I'm going, no, your dad will kill me. Please, Raymond, nobody will ever know. It's like, oh, no, I can't. Oh, your dad and my will I promised them we wouldn't dance. How stupid is that? Sorry, I shouldn't get uptight about it. <laughs> but just absolutely nuts. I think I've told you before about we, we weren't allowed to swim on the Sabbath. So you go away for a weekend with a the, with the youth group. And Sabbath is Friday. It's not Sunday. But Sunday was Sabbath. And so you're not allowed to swim on Sunday. And so here were all these teenagers with this beautiful pool in the middle of the summer. And you're not allowed to swim. Of course, people found ways of accidentally falling in (laughs) as they walked by. We We had one girl who was so... She was so perfect. She was, her boyfriend was going to meet us back at the church, and so she got perfectly dressed with perfect makeup. Guess what we did with her? Like, oops! Jesus said, you're not to be like this. The Pharisee who stands there, and he says to God, hey, I know I'm not perfect, but boy, you started with something pretty good. Yeah, I'm cut from the same cloth as you, God. I'm like you. I'm godly. And that's the problem. Jesus said, that's the model that you people are looking at. That is not what will get you into the kingdom of heaven. God does not want you to become this kind of arrogant person. And the guy is is sneering at all these other robbers and evildoers and adulterers and this tax collector. Remember, tax collectors were hated because they were uh, people who were working on behalf of the Roman government. And they were like the mafia. They would charge people for protection money as well. And so they were hated. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Poor in heart. That's exactly what it means to be poor in heart. It doesn't mean to just smash yourself down. It means just to admit, God, I'm not perfect, and I can't make myself perfect. The Apostle Paul was one of those Pharisees. And the Apostle Paul wanted to break the the picture in people's minds about what it means to be a true child of God. And so in one of his letters, he had to say, okay, wait, do you understand that previously I had all the credentials that we thought gave you entrance to heaven? He says, if someone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, which means in myself, I have more. And this is actually arranged backwards so that you can see the ladder that they thought would climb, to he- climb him to heaven. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, I was born into the right kind of family who circumcised me on the eighth day. And circumcision was a sign that the family said, we're committed to the Lord God and we're going to pass our commitment on to the next generation. And that's part of what circumcision meant. Of the people of Israel, okay, notice that. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin were known as the strong, powerful believers. They were the ones who were most respected as the the warriors. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's saying, I was a true blue Jew all the way through. If you wanted a true blue Jew, you got me. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That was his impression of himself. And he said, But this, but whatever gains were to me, I now consider them garbage. <laughs> and it actually means something way worse than garbage. Think of walking down a street where the animals have all been, where the people have all been, and there are no porta parties around. That's what he's describing. He said, All these credentials that I thought that I could bring before God that would impress God, they're nothing but dung." that I may gain, he said, so whatever was gains to me, I now consider them dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God declares you to be righteous. He declares you to be completely forgiven of all of your sins and to be someone who has the purity, the perfection of Jesus Christ. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God says, when I look at you, I see Jesus first. And I see a perfect person, and I see someone who is in Christ at this point in time. So for us to kind of grasp this, I found some statements that helped me. I am so valuable to God, he sent his son to save me. I'm so sinful, his son had to die in my place to save me. Think about that. If we could save ourselves, Jesus would not have come and died on the cross. He died on the cross because we cannot save ourselves. And if you've never yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, don't waste another day of your life. God's got all kinds of things for you to accomplish, all kinds of things to do in your life. Don't waste another day of your life. Let Jesus come in. It's very simple. You just simply say, Jesus, I'm sick of being God in my own life. I know that I've got these imperfections. Jesus, come in. I need you. That means being poor in spirit. But it doesn't stop there. I'm always poor in spirit. So Jesus sent his spirit to spiritually enrich my soul. Jesus said, you come to me in faith like this, and now yours is the kingdom of heaven. But you're not perfect yet, so I'm going to send my spirit, and he's going to come and live inside of you. And as he lives inside of you, he's going to change you from the inside out that you may become more and more like me. Paul writes this in Romans, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit that gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death, in order that the righteous requirement of the law may be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He's saying, you let the Spirit come into you, you're always, we're always poor in Spirit, we've always got flaws, and like I said, you'll find you've got more flaws than you know, as time goes on. But God doesn't reveal them to us to crush us. He reveals them in order to strengthen us and to build us from there. And so this first one, poor in spirit, is a description of if you wanted to see what a, a child of God is like, it's someone who is allowing the light of Jesus Christ into their lives by not holding back from him, by saying, Jesus, I need you. I'm spiritually bankrupt. The years that I, I or not years, months that I was selling diamonds... One night, and this was in Delaware, it was sleeting outside. It was cold, and you had the sleet falling down. So it was ice cold, but we had to stay open. And a young woman came in who had won a two-carat diamond from our company. Imagine that kind of like, whoa. So when she came in, no other customers in the place, the rest of the staff, I don't know where they were. I went and got the two carat diamonds that we were allowed to give her, okay? So we we brought out the two carat diamonds and we sat down at the table and we started to look through the two carat diamonds. I showed out in a microscope how to look at them and stuff like that. And all the time, she just seemed flat. You know, you think somebody who's wanted a two carat diamond is like, yeah, excited to get this diamond. There was just something about her whole persona that was just flat. And so I asked her, You're not allowed to do this, by the way, but I asked her. I said, is there something wrong? And she just sat there silently with tears running down her face. And then I said, do you want to tell me about it? And she did, and she started to open up her heart and talk. And as she talked, God was saying to me, this girl needs Jesus. And after a while, I had took the nerve. Okay, I'm working for a company where well, you're not allowed to do this with your customers. But nobody was coming in. Okay, they were sleet outside, and for we had at least a couple of hours with nobody else around. And so during that time, and I don't remember how the door opened, to, for me to say, can I tell you about Jesus? Because Jesus will meet you at this point of need. And after I'd explained the gospel to her, I asked her, would you like to ask Christ to come into your life? And she said, of course. And the peace of God that passes all understanding descended upon her. It was the most amazing thing to see that change that happened as she asked Christ to come into her life. I told, I knew where she lived. It was a place where there was a superb church. And so I suggested she go find that church. And then I said, all right, now what about the diamond? And she said, I'm gonna come back. I was like, eh. I don't want a diamond. I got something else tonight that was way more important in my life than a two-carat diamond. And I'm so thankful that God brought bad weather and gave somebody the opportunity to win a diamond because he had something else planned for her for that night. And so for all of us, be aware that God may, when you least expect it, bring someone into your life. Bring someone who is ready For you to tell them about Jesus Christ, and all you have to do is just be aware, be prepared, be sensitive, and God will give us those kind of opportunities. Being poor in spirit doesn't mean that I beat myself up, that I make myself into a worm. Being poor in spirit means I just face the facts. (laughs) I am precious to God, but I'm flawed. And God wants me to understand the flaws so that he can gain access to begin to first give me life and then begin to change me. Do not try and steal my diamond. (laughs) Let's pray together. We learned a little prayer thing last week and I wanted...